At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. Good morning. Hey, you don't look tired at all. I don't know what Rick's talking about. You're looking good. We live in like, I think, the most spiritually amazing time than ever before. And I, and I know when I say that, maybe your first thought is like, Chris, are you living under a rock? It's horrible out there. And I know <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. I get it. I get it. But there has never been a moment in history when we have had more access to like spiritual growth, Christian materials than we do right now. Like there's, there's literally no excuse to be like biblically illiterate in our contemporary culture between podcasts and books and internet sites and YouTube videos and the myriad of things that we have access to at any moment of any day. It's just an amazing time to, to be connected to church, to be connected to uh, Christianity, to, that, that, that that material is just there for us. Uh, matter of fact, uh, none ever, I don't know if that's a word, none ever have we had access to some of the greatest preachers and pastors than we do right now. With the onset of the internet and the smartphones that live in our pockets, we can call up some of the best Christian communicators on the planet and listen to them anytime we feel like it. Not, not only contemporary pastors, but like the great preachers of old, anytime we want to, we can either hear their stuff or read their stuff because of the times that we live in. And that, I think that's just an amazing uh, reality. And what I want to talk about this morning as we're in between series and it's Labor Day weekend and so we're all just kind of hanging out together is I want to look at my favorite pastor. My favorite pastor of all time, of all the preachers anywhere. Um, this is my favorite pastor and I think you've probably heard of him. His name is Jonah. There's a book in the Bible written about him. If you've never heard of him before, that's totally fine. We're going to walk through his story today. And if you have heard of him, that's, that's also fine. We're still going to walk through his story today. He is my favorite pastor. And I think, frankly, uh, he's my favorite pastor because he is absolutely a mess. <laughs> like, if you know the story, he is a mess. And yet... God uses him. That's just wild, wild stuff. Now, uh, it, it, because I think majority of our culture have, have heard of the story of Jonah, or if you haven't heard of the story of Jonah, you've probably heard of uh, the, the Disney movie uh, Pinocchio, right? Which you thought Disney did it first, but God actually did it first. That God's story was much before. So you know this story, and I just want to deal with the elephant in the room, or maybe more literally the whale in the room, because the, this story at some point involves a, a whale, or really the Bible says a large fish, never says whale, but we've translated it to whale because it's like the biggest fish we know or whatever. And I know you're like, who's not a fish? Just relax. So it involves this large aquatic animal swallowing Jonah and taking him to where he's supposed to go. And a lot of people get hung up on that. And they go, there's no possible way that a whale could swallow. And I don't know. Here's, here's what I want to do is just in two minutes, help us work through that. Because I think one of Satan's really uh, effective strategies is to keep us locked up on and arguing about the least important things 
and we miss the message of the most important things. And so if that's a problem for you, this potential of an animal swallowing a human to take them from where he was and take them to where God wanted them to go, like, I'm okay with that. I, here's what I want to say. Here's the big pastoral theological advice. If you're here in the room or if you're listening online, ready? Get over it. <laughs> I know. That's, that's why nobody comes to me for counseling anymore, right? <laughs> get, o- get over it. I kind of kind of don't care how you get past it. Uh, so lo- there's lots of theories on this. Some people were like, well, it was probably dolphins. They're like, hee, and they helped him get to where he needed to go. Fine. If that works for you, that's cool. Like some people are like, well, it was probably just a boat and it had like a whale on the bow of it. And so they thought, and that, that's fine. If that works, I'm being serious. Like if that works for you, fine. Whatever works for you. Some people are like, well, Jonah was really not in a good condition when he got, you'll see why, but like he was probably pretty messed up. And so he, it was probably a boat, but he thought it was a whale. Whatever you need to do to mentally get past probably the least important detail in the story, like, like please do that. Like, I'll just, I mean, I'll go on record. I have zero problem believing that God created some gigantic aquatic animal to transport a dude that he wanted over here who was going over here over to over here. Like, I have no problem believing that. Matter of fact, I have less problem wrapping my head around that than I do this fact that God orchestrated all time and history to have his son born at the exact right time in the exact right place to the exact right couple to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies so that we would have a right relationship with him. That's much more difficult to figure out and wrap your head around than God just created a large animal and that's what happened. So however you get through the whale in the room, like I just wanna say get through that so we don't, we don't miss the most important part of this whole uh, story. Fair enough? All right, here we go. Jonah, chapter one. We're gonna jump right into it. We're gonna work our way through the whole story. It's four chapters, real short. We'll have some fun with it, hopefully. Uh, And that's where we wanna be. I hope you have a Bible this morning. I'd love you to have a Bible and have that open to Jonah, chapter one. We will put the verses on the screen as well. They'll be in the app also, and that's fine. But I think there's some things that you may wanna circle or doggy ear or however you do that. Here we go. Jonah, chapter one, starting in verse one. It says this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonas, son of Amittai. Arise and go into the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So right out the chute, we get this, 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 this factoid that Jonah is a real person. I mean, it names his dad. He's from this family. So this is a historical person. Jonah's not some made up. He's not some caricature. Like he's a real dude that's gonna do a real thing. And so we, we get that right out the chute because it lists like where he's from. And, uh, and so that makes this book, this type of literature, we call it historical narrative. It is a historical story designed to preach a point or to teach a point or written to, to, to demonstrate a point, but it's a real thing that happened to a real person. And, and, and it's uh, clear, like God is abundantly clear what he wants Jonah to do. There's no confusion. It's only a few words. It's, it's not complex. God says, uh, uh, arise, get up and go to Nineveh. And so it's, it, God is like abundantly obvious of what he wants Jonah to do. Now that word, arise, you may not see it in the text because the, all of our texts, except for a couple, translate it go, but it's literally those two words combined, arise and go. And here's the challenge that I have for you because that word arise is used four times throughout the rest of this book. And, it, and it's gonna be um, uh, contrasted with the word down, So the word arise and the word down, and your only job this morning is to pay enough attention to figure out who those words are used about. 
It's a really interesting literary device that's employed by the author of Jonah to help prove the point that he's trying to prove. So you gotta pay attention a little bit. So it's used four times and you're gonna pay attention to that. Here we go, chapter uh, one, verse three. God says, go, verse three, but Jonah, it's always the best, like whenever a sentence starts with but and then there's a name because like that's like a, <laughs> that's gonna be funny. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went down aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So immediately something is happening in this story. God says go to Nineveh and Jonah goes to, well, he goes down to Joppa, pays to get on a boat that's headed for Tarshish. Why Tarshish? Well, it's interesting because Tarshish was the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. About 2,500 miles. God said, go over here. Jonah looked at the map and said, this is the furthest place I can go in the opposite direction. That's where I'm headed. And he put effort into doing that. He goes down to the port. He pays. He buys. literally says he buys the ticket. So like he pays for this. He puts money into this. He puts effort and energy. He had to look at a map. He had to figure out where the furthest place was. And that's where he heads away from where God told him to go. It's interesting because Tarshish is kind of this amazing city. It holds this allure of flashy things. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says that Solomon's fleet brought back gold, silver, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks from Tarshish. Like to us, we're like, we go to the zoo. Yeah, but they didn't have that. Like that was a big deal. It was like this place with this amazing exotic adventure. Tarshish was the ideal versus the real. Uh, there's an author named Eugene Peterson. He uh, did the translation of the message version of the Bible. He writes a book called Under the Unpredictable Plant. And this is what he says about Tarshish. He says, in Tarshish, we can have a religious career without having to deal with God. And that's what Tarshish represented for Jonah, the exact opposite of Nineveh. See, Nineveh, the text already tells us that the Ninevites were wicked, and that is an incredible understatement. I mean, they were the cruel, brutal center of the Assyrian nation. We know a bunch about the Assyrians by, by our point in history today. These people were absolutely brutal. They were absolutely Ruthless. You can read stories of how they uh, handled their enemies or uh, folks that were defeated in battle by them or even their slaves and servants, and, and it will give you nightmares. I'm not over-exaggerating. I'm not making that up. It is absolutely brutal the way that they handled and dealt with people. Matter, matter of fact, maybe the best, maybe the best uh, um, contemporary correlation would be to say that they are the Taliban of their time. They, they invented and set the bar for brutality and torture. They're incredibly wicked. And so it's not maybe so much that Jonah's like trying to outrun God. Like he thinks, well, I'll go over here and God won't notice me. I mean, he's not stupid, right? So he's not trying to go a place that God won't know where he is, but he's absolutely heading to a place where he doesn't have to think about what it is God wants him to do. Maybe the way we would say that today is he is literally entertaining himself to death. Tarshish was entertainment. Tarshish was easy. It had cool things and tons to do. It was the great distraction. And that's where Jonah is headed as opposed to where he's supposed to go. So Jonah runs. 
And we kind of ask why, and it could be that Jonah is scared. I mean, there's a good chance that if he goes to Nineveh, he's gonna die. I mean, it's, it's very likely that uh, somewhere in Jonah's life, he's had uh, friends or even family members that have probably been captured and tortured and killed by, by the brutal Ninevites. And so Jonah, it could be that he's scared, that he's afraid uh, he's gonna die, so he goes to Tarshish and figures God will find someone else. If I just make it really hard on God, God will figure out another way. That's pretty funny, right? Uh, more likely, and we'll see this in a minute, uh, or at least a bigger part of Jonah's brain, he's probably even more afraid that God might actually show up. Like, it's not that Jonah doesn't know God. It's that he knows God. And God may actually like, have compassion on these wicked, terrible people that absolutely deserve to be burnt off the face of the planet in Jonah's mind. So what if God shows up? I don't know. So Jonah is panicked and kind of freaked out. It's almost understandable that maybe he would run, except running is never an option for a follower of God. So Jonah runs, and we get down into verse four. He gets on the boat. He goes down into the boat. It says, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up, and all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that he will not per- we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And so they asked Jonah, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? For they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them that. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah said, just pick me up, throw me into the sea. and It'll become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead... The men did the best they could to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Did you catch all of that? Like a bunch of wild stuff just happened. Jonah pays, he gets on the boat, there's a storm, everyone's freaking out. The captain's freaking out. He's throwing cargo overboard. This is a cargo ship. The money they're making is from the cargo they're delivering that they're now they're throwing overboard. Sailors don't get afraid of storms. That's just part of the deal. Like you sail, there's storms, no big deal, right? They are so freaked out. They're dumping over their bonuses and their daily paycheck to try and live. And what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. And the captain freaks out. He runs down to the hook. He's the only person not doing anything. And the captain says, he literally says, arise, like get up, call on your God. Maybe your God will listen because the sailors are all calling on their gods and nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. It's getting worse. The captain says, get up, arise, do something. And I, Jonah doesn't. He just like, ah. And so somehow eventually the, the sailors are like, we got to figure this out. They're trying to figure it out. They're calling on their gods. It's not working. They're dumping cargo over the ship. It's not working. So they cast lots, lots 
Like literally, it's dice. They rolled dice to figure out who was the problem child. And somehow, I don't know how, somehow the dice landed on Jonah. <laughs> and so they called Jonah, Jonah, what's your problem? Who are you? What are you doing? What's the deal? What's going on? What did you do? And Jonah's like, I'm a Hebrew and God and stuff. And they go, what do we do? Jonah, who I picture still sitting in a lounge chair with his swim goggles on and swim trunks, that's just how I picture it, laying on the lounge chair, goes, just throw me overboard, it'll get calm. So you got the sailors and the captain and the folks that seem so far from God, right? Because they're worshiping their own gods and they're not Jews. And yet they are trying to figure this out. They're working, they're putting effort and energy into. And at the end, it says like after they throw them in and it becomes calm, which has kind of got to be a hilarious scene, right? Can you picture this? And the words in the, script, in the text uh, are exactly what should happen to at this in verse 16. The men greatly feared, freaked out in front of the Lord. Because when they threw Jonah overboard, it just went, and they freaked out. It says they believed and they began to offer sacrifices. They, they worshiped this God that they had never known before. The people that were furthest away from God seemed to have this movement towards God. And Jonah is doing what the whole time? Nothing. He's literally doing, man, could you get any more passive? He starts by sleeping. He has to get woken up. And then he still doesn't admit, and so he has to get called out by a dice game. And then he still doesn't do it. I mean, why does Jonah tell the sailors to throw him overboard? Was he not capable of jumping in himself? You see that little picture? He is so passive in this entire event. He's just laying, I don't know if it's true, on the lounge chair with a swim goggles on going, just pick me up and throw me in. He won't even put that much effort into the guy that you would think would be closest to God. He's just not doing anything. So, so we get to chapter two. They, they do throw him in. The, the sea goes calm. Chapter two is this crazy, it's a cool prayer. It's what Jonah talks about as he's in the ocean, in the belly of the whale and whatnot. We'll skip that for now and jump over to uh, chapter three, starting in verse one. Because verse 10 of chapter two says, and the Lord commanded the fish and it puked him out onto dry land. That's kind of funny right there. But so, so the fish takes from where he was, takes him to where he's supposed to go. And in verse, uh, chapter three, verse one, it says, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah gets a second chance. Jonah, you ran the first time, okay? I picked you up, I took you where you're supposed to go. I don't know if you caught that or not, Jonah, but you're gonna give it a second chance. So arise, get up and go in and give the message I'm telling you to give. You would think, I would think, I would hope that I'd be a little more responsive at this point would think that, right? You would think that of yourself, like, okay, I blew it the first time. This time, I'm, I'm all in, 100% God. I get it. You and me, were. this is what it says in verse three. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. It's true. Jonah obeys the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed. All of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Jonah's on the shore. He starts to head into Nineveh. Matter of fact, that word there, it says that he begins to go, or, or, or he, um, uh, he starts to move. It has this sense the construction is interesting of, of starting to go into. It's this, this picture of, like, like being resistant, and he starts to go into, you could use that word to mean pierce. 
And so I think the picture we have here is as Jonah stands on that shore and he sees the Nineveh and it's this big place, he's like, fine. And he goes in. And it says that it takes three days to go across it. How far did Jonah go in? Anybody with me still? One day, is that halfway? Nope. He doesn't even go halfway. It's like, it's like he, he goes in and, and he gets to a point, I don't know, his feet got tired or he just was like, forget this. He goes in uh, one day and whoever's around in that little space that he decided to stop in, he basically says this, you're all doomed, good luck, I'm out of here. And that was it. He's out, heads back out. What, a, what an interesting thing, like the worst preacher ever. Could you imagine, and maybe, maybe it would have been fun to do this, but could you imagine if I got up this morning and said, well, good morning, you're all doomed, let's pray. We pray, we go, and you're like, well, that was horrible. <laughs> we won't let Chris preach anymore. The worst preacher ever. No hope, no talk of God. Literally, you're doomed, good luck, I'm out. And here's the wild part. Everybody believes him. Like literally, he's five words and everybody believes somehow in that they recognize that there's a message for them, a warning that it's from God, that they, they, they are for that. And it says that they respond, they believe, they respond mentally, it says they believe, they respond emotionally, it says that they fasted, they stopped eating for a period, and they responded physically, it says that they put on sackcloth. You put on sackcloth, this really terrible burlap stuff to show that you were in mourning, that you were sorry and repentant. And so they do this, it says from the, the greatest, to the least, from the top down, the entire nation like repents. Matter of fact, in verse six, it says that the king arose from his throne, took off his clothes, put on dust and sackcloth and fasted. So it took a little while for the message to go from like whatever shop Jonah stopped in front of. It was like, yeah, you're doomed, see ya. To get that message up to the king as the gossip chain sort of did its thing. But when the king heard that, he said, man, and he, he, kings don't get up off their thrones. Except for very specific, like they're angry or they're broken. This guy, he's somehow, I don't understand how this works. He's broken. So we get to verse 10 in chapter three and it says this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. God shows compassion. God shows compassion. He shows mercy. He, he, he entered into this thing going, hey, you guys are in some deep trouble. You're incredibly wicked. Destruction is coming. Jonah was really excited about that part. Woohoo! let's destroy these suckers. But then they repent to the worst possible message ever, and God relents. He shows compassion. He spares them. We get to chapter four. In verse one, it says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? I was tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Like, like do you catch what was just said there? Does it make you feel sick in your stomach? It ought to cause us pause. 
Jonah says, and the way the language is, is packed there, Jonah, in essence, says, so God, you had your word, now shut up and listen to mine. <laughs> it's always, always smart to sass God with as much sarcasm as you can. I say that jokingly, don't do that. Right. And Jonah does. And then Jonah says, my problem with you, I know that you're compassionate and you're good and you're loving and that's garbage. We gotta go, what was wrong with Jonah? That that was his heart. So he has this little tirade and in verse four, it's like God doesn't interrupt him. God lets him have his, his rant. God asks this question. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Uh, literally, the way that's constructed is, does it do you well to be angry? Another way to put that is, is there good that is coming out of your anger? Is there good that's coming out of your anger right now? And Jonah, he, uh, he, 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 he just sits there and he, he kind of runs out because God asks him a question that he doesn't want to deal with. What a timely question for today. Our culture has tons of anger in it. Our culture is full of angry people. I say our culture, and I mean our culture, Christian culture. Often when I say our culture, I'm talking about the outside the doors here. I'm talking about us in the room. There is a lot of anger in us. Masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, open up, lockdown, liberal, conservative, manufactured in a lab or generated from an animal. Is any of that anger bringing any good? Like if God were to come down this morning and ask us the question, do you do well to be angry? What do we say? It's interesting because Jonah doesn't say anything. He, uh, verse five, uh, he runs out, he leaves. And, ah, I don't know what that sounds like, but that's what I think he does. And he goes out uh, outside the city and he sits on a big hill and he overlooks uh, Nineveh and he just watches. I think somewhere in the back of Jonah's head, he's still got this crossed finger hope that God is gonna rain down some Sodom and Gomorrah style destruction on this place and he gets to watch the fireworks. So he's sitting up on this hill, just kind of sulking and huffing and, and watching and it gets hot, so he builds himself a little shade canopy, and it doesn't work so well, and Jonah starts whining, and so then God uh, has this vine grow up behind Jonah, which should have freaked Jonah out, or at least brought him to some kind of sanity, but uh, it grows up, and Jonah's very happy now, because he has shade, and he's just thrilled, he's very happy, and, and then uh, he kind of sits there overnight, hoping for destruction, because he wants to see some people boil, and, uh, and, and overnight, then this worm comes, God sends this worm, and it eats the vine, and, and then it dies, and it gets, God sends out, he turns up the heat, sends out a scorching sun, and now Jonah's whining about being super hot and stuff, he's just complaining how frustrated he is, that you know this happened, and that happened, and we get down to verse uh, 9, and God picks up with the same question that he left off before because Jonah never answered it. In verse nine, it says, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? Does it do well for you to be angry about this plant? Is there any good coming out of you to be angry about this plant? Jonah's fixated on the plant, so God uses the plant as kind of this object lesson to, to have this moment. Jonah says, I am, it is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, 
though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand and also many animals? He asks the question to Jonah again, does it do well for you to be angry about this plant? And Jonah says, it does. I have a right to be angry about this plant. It's frustrating. It's stupid. I was shady and happy. Now I'm not. It's stupid. It's hot. I don't hate it. And God says, you didn't do anything for the plant. You didn't, you didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. You didn't water it. You did nothing for it. And yet all your concern is locked up in this plant. And there was a whole nation of people out there. It says doesn't know their right hand from their left. This idea of doesn't really, don't, they don't know any better. Shouldn't, shouldn't we have concern for them, Jonah? God, God puts it on himself. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? Like I was concerned about you a little for this plant and show you some shade. Thinking maybe you'd figure it out, but you still haven't. Like you have this entirely inverted scale of value, Jonah. You are amped up about a shade plant and you couldn't care less about, it says 120,000 people that just don't know any different. They're on the road to hell without my intervention. Jonah has this incredibly self-absorbed, single focus. It's all about himself. Jonah, a pastor who knew God well enough to know how God might respond to wicked people, cares more about the momentary comfort of a shade than an entire nation of people that are headed to hell without Jonah's intervention. That's sick and wrong. It should cause us, like, we should feel something deep down. When our kids were little, maybe we bought them the Jonah playset. <laughs> it was a cute little whale, and cute little, you know, people with big heads and little bodies. And we're like, oh, it's adorable. And it is adorable. We had the Jonah, whatever thing you call that, that goes above the, the crib. It spins around, the musical thing. Yeah, mobile, thanks. And the, and the more I think about that, I'm like, that's like a terrible thing for children. <laughs> I mean, it's adorable, and we should go buy them. I don't care. But the message, but like, man, Jonah. And then we're left. This is the weirdest book ever. It's the weirdest ending ever. God says, shouldn't I care about them? Oh, and the animals. And that's it. It just stops. We don't know what happened. We're left with Jonah sitting on a hill, sulking, whining, having this very uh, disrespectful conversation with God. We don't know if he responds to God's words after he says that. We don't know if he just continued to sit there hoping that uh, something would blow up. We don't know if he just went home and tried to forget all about it. We don't know if he went into Nineveh and said, you know what, let me help these guys figure out what it means to follow God. Let me help them get to know. We just don't know. It just ends. And it's this really powerful literary device that turns our focus and the camera, if it were a movie, that was focused on Jonah and moves it directly to us. And all of a sudden, we're in the story. And the question that God asked Jonah is left with us. And the problems that we identify in Jonah and that he knew God was compassionate and he knew God was loving and he knew God was good and that ticked him off because he did not like these people. It's left with us how much Jonah do I have in me? How much am I like Jonah? And it just ends. And we're left to figure out the question. So I would suggest at least four lessons that we learned from the book of Jonah. There's, there's probably more, and maybe you would come up with some better ones. But here's four things that I would just suggest um, are powerful lessons that we have to see out of this book from my favorite pastor uh, ever. And here's the first one. Number one, God is sovereign. 
We cannot get away from the story of Jonah and not understand that it's trying to demonstrate God is sovereign over people, oceans, wind, animals, vines, and hearts. And that sometimes presents us some problems because sometimes bad things happen and they happen to good people and we have to struggle with the question, why does that, if God is sovereign, why? And I don't have great answers, but I know it doesn't detract from God's sovereignty. Here's the second thing I think that we learn is that God is open to authentic, real, raw conversation from us. It's interesting to me that nowhere in the story does God rebuke Jonah for his words. If that were my child, you with me, parents? And yet Jonah lets him have, God lets Jonah have the rant. God, I don't know why, allows the sass. God asks some good questions, Jonah doesn't respond. But God seems to be open to very authentic conversation with him. And, and somewhere along the way, maybe it didn't happen for you, but I know it happened for me. We got like in our brains that we had to come to God with certain words, very polite, churchy, like respectful. And I'm not saying don't, like you should go disrespecting God. That's a dangerous game to play. But, but, but like somehow we had to come to God with like special words or something. And it just doesn't seem like that in Jonah. Like Jonah is very aware of who God is to the extreme that he's very comfortable just talking to him and laying out his frustrations and his anger. And I think Jonah's messed up, but he's open about his messed upness. Like it's incredibly comforting to me. Like God's not frail. It's not like you're gonna use a word that's gonna freak him out or somehow you're gonna say something that he's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm gonna go in my ears, right? I think that we just have this ability to be authentic with him. And sometimes when we communicate the opposite, like, oh no, you gotta speak in special ways, I think it just turns people off. See, our God, my, my God, our God is big enough to handle those conversations and those questions and those frustrations. And maybe it looks like a five-year-old being frustrated about things that I can't even understand. And that's okay, God, I think, can take that. You can't rattle him. Here's the third thing. A life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God and his commands. A life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God and his commands. At the very beginning, I said there was two words that were gonna be used over and over again. The words arise and the word down. I asked you to pay attention to who those words are used of. Did you notice who the word, the, the word down is used of exclusively? Did you notice who? Jonah, always Jonah. Jonah is always headed down, uh, away Right, he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the sea. Everything is this sense of away or the opposite or, or down. And the, op the other word is the word arise. And the word arise is used of basically everybody else in the story. I mean, God tells Jonah to arise and go. Jonah goes down. Right, the sailors arise and try to figure out what's going on. The captain tells Jonah to arise like the captain and help figure it out. The captain is arising. The sailors are arising. The, 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 the king, the people, they, this word arise is used of them. And there's this really interesting literary thing going on where the person that we think should be moving towards God, Jonah, is the one who is going the opposite direction. And the folks that we would probably be convinced, or if we were a Jew reading this uh, story way back in the day, the day, we would be convinced that everybody else in the story does not know God, and yet they seem to be moving towards God. Uh, limping, struggling, flopping, crawling. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're struggle busting, but they are moving towards God somehow. And, and, and we can't miss that. 
See, spiritual growth is not about doing the right things. It's all about moving the right direction. And so this book, as it ends in this very bizarre way, and the camera focuses on us, it asks us that question. Which way are we moving? I don't want to use the word we. Which way am I moving? Which way are you moving? Are you moving towards, arise, God? Or are you moving away, down, Tarshish, easier, distractions? I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to entertain myself. End of story. I don't want to do the stuff that God wants me to do. Which direction are you moving? Here's the fourth thing that I think we learned from the, the book of Jonah. A life growing spiritually evaluates one's own heart and removes that which hinders service or perspective. In other words, are you removing the things that are keeping you from moving towards Jesus? I don't know what that is for you, but in the work that I do with people, what I'm seeing a lot of right now is too much news, too much social media, maybe too much entertainment, work, sports, so-called friends, vices. I'm seeing a lot of too much that I think is causing us to function a lot more like Jonah and a lot less like everybody else in the story. Anything that calluses you towards the heart of God, that's stuff that's gotta be removed. God asks us the question, do you do well to be angry about that? Is good things coming from your involvement, engagement, anger, frustration in that area? So the things that break God's heart should break ours also. And it's Probably not masks and vaccines and BLM and law enforcement, black and white and liberal. It has a lot more to do with division. Those are things that break God's heart. Or injustice, that breaks God's heart. Lack of mercy, that breaks God's heart. Jonah broke God's heart because Jonah knew how compassionate and good God was and he did not want any of that for people he did not like. Are our hearts being broken by the same things that break God's heart? As the band comes out, we'll sing one more song, and uh, I just want to finish by reading the prayer that Jonah prayed in chapter two. We skipped over that, but as he's thrown into the water and sinking down and, and uh, fish is swallowing him or however you work that out in your head, this is what Jonah prays. This pastor who was incredibly messed up, and yet God still used him, this is what he says. He says, when I was in trouble, Lord, I prayed to you and you listened to me. From deep in the world of the dead, I begged for your help and you answered my prayer. You threw me down to the bottom of the sea. The water was churning all around. I was completely covered by your mighty waves. I thought I was swept away from your sight, never again to see your holy temple. I was almost drowned by the swirling waters that surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my head. I had sunk down below the underwater mountains and I knew that forever I would be a prisoner there. But you, Lord God, you rescued me from that pit. When my life was slipping away, I remembered you. And in your holy temple, you heard my prayer. All who worship worthless idols turn from the God who offers them mercy. But with shouts of praise, I will offer a sacrifice to you, my Lord. I will keep my promise because you are the one with power to save. Amen.